The text for this afternoon's service is from Luke 2, verses 24 to 30, which we have already read together. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open uh, to this passage as it is referenced frequently through the sermon. After the sermon, we will sing together hymn 38. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there are some people who have a knack for saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Serious moments are broken by humor. Sad moments are interrupted by inappropriate laughter. Well, in our text, the disciples pick the absolute worst time to have an argument among themselves. They're gathered in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover with their beloved teacher, and they know the end is near. They knew that as soon as they returned to Jerusalem, the chief priests and scribes would find a way to kill Jesus. And in fact, as they eat the Passover together, Jesus has made it clear that suffering lies in his immediate future. If this argument follows immediately in terms of time on the verses above, then Jesus has also made it clear that one of them is going to betray him into the hands of his enemies. His coming suffering and death are weighing heavily on his mind. And then the disciples start an argument amongst themselves about, of all things, who is the greatest among them. It's hard to imagine a more inappropriate conversation at this important moment in Jesus' earthly ministry. What's more, it's as though all the disciples have been taught over the past three years has fallen on deaf ears. Because this isn't the first time they've had this conversation. At an earlier time, it was also right after Jesus had predicted his coming death. Then, too, they argued among themselves. And on another occasion, they even had the audacity to go up to Jesus himself and ask him who the greatest in the kingdom of heaven was. In a sense, they've all betrayed him in this moment by denying the message of the kingdom that Jesus had been preaching so clearly for so long. But rather than abandon these slow-learning and hard-hearted disciples, Jesus takes the time, again, to tell them what lies at the heart of his kingdom. He answers the question, who is the greatest, with a three-part answer. He teaches the system of the world, the way of the kingdom, and the reward of the king. In some respects, the supper table was the natural place for a conversation of this sort. Your social ranking and your importance determined where you would sit at the table. It's not unlike a wedding, where you can generally tell how close people are to the bride and groom by how close they are to the head table. At other places in the gospel, Luke has pointed out that the Pharisees and experts in the law were very careful to note proper seating arrangements. They criticized Jesus for sitting down with tax collectors and prostitutes for that very reason. It undermined the social structures that were in place. But it wasn't just the Pharisees. In the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, we're told that the mother of James and John the sons of Zebedee, went with her two sons to ask Jesus if they could sit at his right and his left in the kingdom of heaven. 
At that time, the other disciples were quite upset with those two, but evidently, their hearts aren't much different. And so also on this occasion, maybe because of the order they were seated in around the table of the last Passover, an argument breaks out. Who is the greatest? And Jesus notices. Jesus begins his answer by pointing his disciples to the system of the world they lived in. He says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Notice how Jesus explicitly mentions the Gentiles. He wants to make it clear that he's talking about the world out there, that it is away from the people of God. In the system of the world, there are kings and emperors and governors and city officials and all sorts of people who have positions of authority. In this system, there are two realities. They exercise lordship and they're called benefactors. The first of these, to exercise lordship, is the verb associated with the word kyrios, or lord or master, the very title that has been given to Jesus. A kyrios was one who had absolute power over his subjects. In the case of a master-slave relationship, the kyrios literally owned the body and soul of the slave. His authority knew no bounds. Yet it was a legal authority. It was the system of the world. The heart of Jesus' message about this system comes, though, in his second point, that they are called benefactors. In other translations, that word is capitalized, and it really should be. Because the word benefactor was an official title, eurgetes. Two kings of the Seleucid Empire ruling in Syria even adopted it as part of their official names. Jesus is talking here about the specific system in place in the Roman world, the world of patron-client relationships. Roman society was built on a complex web of relationships between patrons and clients. The patron was the one with status and privilege and power, while the client was someone who was on the receiving end of the patron's generosity. The system worked from the top down. The emperor was the greatest patron in the empire. He would pronounce feast days and give generous banquets. He would put on chariot races and gladiatorial games. In return, the people would call him their benefactor and owed him <coughs> their loyalty and honor. Under him, the governors had their place and the city officials under them so that the entire Roman society was built on this giant web of relationships where the wealthy gave benefactions, gave gifts to those who had less wealth. That was the way the world worked. Now, you might be wondering why Jesus would criticize a system like that. In some respects, the system worked really well. The wealthy, in some respects, took care of those who were poorer than them and the system ran relatively smooth. The problem, however, lay at the heart of the system and in the hearts of those who exercise lordship. The system was built on self-interest. It was a system motivated by greed. 
It relied on the sinful attitudes and inclinations of the heart to establish security. The emperor was benefactor not because he cared about the people under him, but because that was the way to secure their loyalty. The patron took care of his clients not because he wanted to take care for their needs, but because he needed them to keep his social status and honor. He needed an entourage to follow him around, doing his business during the day to make sure that everyone knew how important he was. Self-interest was the currency of this world. And so Jesus is saying here implicitly that this isn't true benefaction. This isn't true care. He's not criticizing a group of people who abuse the system. He rejects the entire system because it's built on self-interest. Our world is, of course, much different from the first century Roman world. We don't live in a patron-client world. And yet, there's much that's the same. Human nature doesn't change, and self-interest doesn't go away. The currency of power in our world is just as much pride and selfishness. You just have to think of any modern election to see what it, that it's true. The one who gains power is the one who manages to convince the most people that I am the greatest. And if that doesn't convince you, just go to the playground where things are a little more honest and direct. I'm the best soccer player. I'm the fastest runner. My dad's the greatest. We certainly aren't immune from this kind of attitude in the church. Often, authority exercised in the church is no different in character from the power exercised in the world. How many husbands in the church operate on a system of self-interest wanting their needs to be met? How many parents in the church find their kids are an obstacle to their own self-interest? And the church leadership can easily operate under the same system. We might be more sophisticated than the disciples, but the question, who is the greatest, is definitely not unfamiliar. We can't look too critically at the disciples without thinking critically about ourselves. But then come the crucial words, the words that have been behind Jesus' entire ministry, but not so with you. The way of the kingdom is not the way of the world. Jesus says, look at the world around you. Do you see how it operates? Not so with you. Now note well that Jesus is not saying to his disciples that they shouldn't be leaders or that they shouldn't be benefactors. In fact, he'll confirm them in their special place a little later on. Instead, he says that the way they lead and their manner of ruling must be completely, fundamentally different. The point then is not that we shouldn't have leaders in the church or that we shouldn't have leaders in our family, as though Jesus is advocating for some kind of democracy or even communism in the kingdom. Instead, his point is that everyone in the kingdom with any position of authority, whether as a parent, an elder, as deacon, as pastor, or even just as older with younger, everyone is to exercise that power in the kingdom way. But what then is the kingdom way? Well, the greatest in the kingdom, the ones with the most authority, the ones in positions of leadership are to be the youngest. 
They are to be the ones who serve. The youngest was the one with the least status in society, the one on the lowest rung of the social ladder. And the servant wasn't even on the ladder. The table servant was a complete nobody. Everyone knew that. Jesus asked his disciples question again, who is greater? But it was a rhetorical question. Of course, the one who reclines at the table is greater than the one who serves him the food. No question there. But in the kingdom, Jesus says, things are thrown upside down. The world gets turned on its head. Typical social rules are completely reversed. The kingdom is an upside down kingdom. In the kingdom, the greater ones, the greatest ones, are those who embrace the humility of table servants and are willing to do the task of table servants. The greatest ones in the kingdom are the ones who are willing to have the status and honor of the youngest, the lowest on the social ladder. There is no self-interest in the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom is a kingdom of service. The currency of the kingdom is service. There is a church in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where it was exp they, who expressed it perfectly. They've put signs above the doors to the sanctuary that say, Servant's Entrance. Because that's the sign above the only door to the kingdom of God, Servant's Entrance. That's been Jesus' message all along, and now in his last hours, he has to remind us again. If you open your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 6. We'll read verses 32 to 36. It's on page 862. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The kingdom way, Jesus says, is not to give with an expectation of reward. It's not to expect honor or recognition or greater authority by the things we do for others. It's to give without any expectation of return. No self-interest whatsoever. The kingdom way is the way of Christ himself. Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. Do you feel the power of those words? Do you see how quickly they cut to the heart of the problem? Do you see how quickly they expose the vital difference between the system of the world and the way of the kingdom? This I is Jesus uncreated, infinite, eternal, almighty, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, 
of one substance with the Father through whom all things were made. This I is Jesus, who for us men in our salvation came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was made man. I am among you as the one who serves. John tells us in his gospel that at the beginning of this very Passover meal, Jesus had taken off his outer clothes, tied a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and gone around washing the disciples' dusty feet. I am among you as the one who serves. This isn't just some metaphorical statement by Jesus. He showed us the way of the kingdom through and through. He literally took on the lowest place, the place of a table servant. That was true greatness. That was a powerful example. But what, it was more than an example. It was the act of our Savior, and it was absolutely necessary. Because he didn't stop at taking the dust and the grime of the road off his disciples' feet. He was on his way to the cross. He would soon be mocked, struck, spat on. He would see his own people cry out with so much hatred, crucify him. He would be stripped again of his outer clothes to be hung on a cross exposed to the world. He would be numbered with the transgressors, crucified between common criminals. But more than that, he allowed himself to be blackened and stained with our sin. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. I am among you as the one who serves. Truer words have never been spoken or shown. This is the way of the kingdom. And this is the way of those who have entered the kingdom. The earliest name for Christians was the people of the way. That is, they were people who were characterized by the way of Christ. Are you a citizen of the kingdom? Be the one who serves. Are you a subject of the heavenly king? Be the one who serves. Has Christ given you a position of leadership in the kingdom? Be the one who serves. Are you a friend, a brother, a sister, a husband, a wife, an elder, a deacon, a pastor? Be the one who serves. Who is the greatest? It's the one who removes all signs of authority and power, wraps a towel around his waist, and washes the feet of the other members. This is only possible if we've truly embraced our Savior. It's certainly not a natural inclination. And the command is empty if it comes apart from the work that Christ has done. Because the only ones who can truly live the way of the kingdom are those who have had their hearts changed by the Spirit of Christ. We will need to recognize our weakness. We will have to confess our self-interest. We will need to acknowledge our emptiness. We will need to fall down at the foot of the cross and lift up our hands to and our hearts to Jesus Christ. It's only from this position of weakness that we can be filled with the love of Christ. It's only through the power of the Spirit that this kind of spirit can exist in the kingdom of Christ. It says something again of Jesus' great love and compassion that he doesn't end his instruction here. 
We could certainly understand if he took it the occasion to rebuke his disciples for completely missing the point of his ministry, especially since he knows that they'll all fall away in just a few hours in his hour of greatest need. But that's also not the way of our Savior. After teaching them again the message of the kingdom, he praises them, he praises them for staying by his side through his trials. He tenderly reassures them with the promise of a reward, grace upon grace. They had been with him during his ministry, even when others left. They've been at his side while the leaders plotted his death. They've been at his side while Satan has constantly been tempting him to abandon the way of the cross. What's more, they'll face trials of their own. They'll face stoning, imprisonment, crucifixion, shipwreck. The way of the kingdom is not the easiest route by far. It's not the most attractive route. It goes against the grain. And so, Jesus' call to be the one who serves is a call to self-denial, to take up our cross. Jesus' call to faithfulness isn't without its reward. The apostles are called to share Jesus' kingly authority just as they shared his suffering. He assigns them the kingdom as God had assigned him the kingdom. They'll sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That is, they'll be sent out into the world to establish the foundations of the church. They're empowered to be the leaders in the new Israel, the church. And they'll be fully rewarded when Christ returns. Then they'll have a seat again at his table, the great banquet feast in the kingdom. But it's not just for the apostles. The Father is pleased to give the kingdom to his entire flock. And so when, when we embrace the way of the kingdom, when we embrace Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, we are also assured a place in the kingdom and at the glorious celebrations at the marriage feast of the Lamb. What a comfort it is to know that despite our failures, despite our weaknesses, Christ welcomes us into his kingdom and calls us to take a seat at the table. And what a reward. No one will come there and think that the sacrifice and hardship wasn't worth it. Instead, we'll recognize fully the wonder of God's grace to weak, selfish, prideful sinners. Did you take the servant's entrance this afternoon? Well, welcome to the kingdom of God, and be sure to go out in the same way. Amen.